Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. Let's get this show on the road here. Here we go now in five, four, three, two, and one. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is a business psychiatrist, FBI hostage negotiator trainer, author of nine books, host of the My Wake Up Call podcast, the co-founder of Michelangelo Mindset, which is also folks nominated for a Thinker's 50 Breakthrough Idea Award, and also his new book, Just Listen, which is a top book on listening in the world and translated in over 28 languages. Please welcome Dr. Mark Golson. Doc, how are you doing today? Boy, what an impactful voice you have, Kevin. I, I'm going to have to step up my game to match you, man. <laughs> uh, you know, I, it's funny. I don't really enunciate in person, but when I come to the show, I just like to take a couple pauses and really uh, make sure my words are coming out clear. They are they are crisp. They are great. I mean, you're making me self-conscious about my nasal voice, but I'll do the best I can. You know, it must be a millennial thing, you know, Mark, and, and that's the thing that we're going to be talking about today. Obviously, folks, the title of this podcast today, if you're watching on Crowdcast here, is How to Lead Millennials Who Don't Listen. So, Doc, we were talking about this uh, concept and topic before the show. Let fill our audience in on how uh, we came to this this subject and this concept. Well, you know, there's there's all these generation clashes and communication gaps between boomers, Gen X, and, and millennials. And I'll, I'll share something. Here's a a, a tactic we use. Uh, a while back, I was the chief mentor at the China Foundation. China Foundation is in uh, Shanghai and. Uh, Peking. And what it does is it trains American uh, managers who go over from Fortune 500 companies to work better with Chinese workers. So talk about a culture clash. That's huge. So one of the things we came up with, which was really helpful, and if you're someone older than a millennial, and uh, and if you're their boss, there's a good chance you are, something you might might say to them and say it assertively, but not abrasively, and say, look, uh, uh, I know that we come from different generations. And I know if this works out between us, we're going to have a long and happy and successful relationship uh, if things work out well. Uh, What I'd like to know from you is what are the things that people in my generation do or say uh, uh, or don't do that really ticks off your generation? Hmm. So going forward, if you can name the three things that your generation really gets exasperated and frustrated with my generation about, I'll do my best not to do those things. And if you can actually come up with a couple things that your generation really appreciates, I'll try and come up with those. And so what happens is you're focusing on the future that nobody has screwed up yet. Hmm. Interesting. And so if they were to say, well, you know, with all due respect, uh, uh, we don't want old war stories. With all all due respect, we don't want people to go on and on. 
Uh, with all due respect, we have shortened attention spans. So it'd be helpful if when you're speaking to us, you get to the point. And we're not trying to be rude or impatient. It's just our generation. Hmm. And but but setting it up that way to ask someone, what should I do and what should I not do so that our communication works out well and so that you actually look forward to speaking to me as opposed to, oh, I got to speak to the, another Gen X or, or worse, a baby boom. You, you know, there's a, a fascinating quote I read a while ago, and I'm totally going to botch this, uh, Mark, but it was around the concept of the, you know, the misconception about communication is that it's actually taking place. And I remember thinking about that and going, interesting, I, there's so many people out there that say, um, do you see what I mean? Do you see what I mean? And they always end with that. And of course, we can't see what they mean. But active listening is something that is very difficult to do for a lot of different people. Do you find that in the people that you work with, whether you're a millennial, whether you're a Gen Zer, whether you're a baby boomer, and how do you improve active listening and intentionally listening and paying attention to what someone is saying? Well, I'll share something. Uh, close to two years ago, I, I spoke in Moscow and I was a headliner along with a Nobel Prize winner named Daniel Kahneman. He wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. He has a new book out, great book out called Noise. And five of my nine books are bestsellers in Russia, including the book on listening. And one of the, and what I spoke to them about, and this was a thousand Russian businessmen, uh, managers, CEOs, and I and the title of my talk was "Change Everything You Know About Communication." So that's a pretty challenging thing, especially from an American going to Russia. I spoke in English, but I was translated immediately into Russian. And what I said to them is, uh, if I focus on you listening to me, you're all listening to me, and I throw out a bunch of bullet points, uh, you'll write them down, some of them will work, most of them won't, you'll say it'll work for him, you know, he's a psychologist type, he's an American, but if I, if I tell some good stories and I'm engaging, you'll give me your mind for an hour. So I spoke like that, and then I switched to my NPR voice. Now they didn't hear me speaking, but they heard my tone, because I was being translated. And I said, so if I focus on you listening to me and I give you those bullet points, you'll give me your mind for an hour. And then I went, but if instead of that, I focus on what you're listening for and I get what you're listening for without you telling me. And if I deliver on that, you'll give me everything. And then I said, let me see if I get what you're listening for. And actually, instead of going into that story, I'm going to play it on you, Kevin. So here's the difference between you listening to me and listening for, and tell me what goes on inside your head or your, your mind as we do this. So are you game for this? I'm game. I'm ready to go. So if I focus on what you're listening to, you know, there's various questions you're going to ask, uh, various answers that, that you want me to give that I'm going to give. Uh, you told me, you know, how the show will progress and some of the things you're going to ask me. And if I give you some good questions, you'll check the boxes and say, oh, we checked the boxes. That's good. And we'll, and we'll have a pleasant transactional conversation. And here we go. But if instead, Kevin, I focus on what you're listening for and I get it right, it's going to be different. 
And I think this is what you're listening for. And I'm saying this because if you're a boss dealing with millennials, even though they're, they're always list, everybody's always listening for something. So Kevin, we ring the we we ring the bell. I think part of what you're listening for is you take the trust and confidence of your listeners seriously, and you want to uh, not disappoint them, and you want to honor them with good information that is practical and tactical, and that they can use immediately to become more impactful. Hmm. You're also listening for since this is a live feed. Uh, someone who may have a best-selling book, but is a real stiff, is boring, is tangential, and you're thinking to yourself, I got to protect my audience from this person. Hmm. And so you're listening for a better way to give value to the people who listen in because you appreciate they're taking the time to listen to this, this program and to support your program. And you're always listening for how can I bring them more value that makes their life better? Is any of that true? I would say, I was just about to ask you, could it be more than one answer? Because I, that is true. Totally. Yeah, yeah, I totally would love my audience to be impactful and I'm definitely trying to act in their best interests. But honestly, I'm listening to you um, to hopefully see that your mood is positive. I want you to make sure that you're comfortable on this show. I'm listening for something new, something new I haven't heard on this show. You know, sometimes it gets a little boring doing these podcasts like day after day after day. I'm like, I want something new, something fresh. That's why I really enjoyed our conversation, you know, about a month ago. I was just like, man, this guy's done so many things, whether it's the OJ Simpson trial, whether his house was filmed or used for super bad, you know, whether he's the FBI hostage negotiator, this guy has seen and experienced some things in this world, and he's going to be able to bring on a new perspective to the show, which in turn would be for my listeners as well. So that's what I'm looking for. So, uh, so you say, so what I heard you say is, yes, Mark, I'm listening to give them value, but you really piqued my interest when we spoke before. I mean, the, the places you've been, the situations you've been in, what you've learned, uh, the OJ trial, um, something I'll share from the OJ trial, which people seem to like. I, I've been giving talks at women's conferences, uh, and I did a keynote at something called Women in Technology International. It's a big uh, meeting, and I was one of a handful of men who spoke. And the title of my talk was Never Be Bullied Again, mm. how, to, uh, how to Confront a Toxic Boss, Coworker, Employee, Ooh. or Family Member. Ooh, that's interesting. So I'm not going to leave you hanging or oh. your listeners. And, and so one of the things I shared, uh, there was a day, uh, you look kind of young. I'm not sure how young you were, but on September 6th, 1995, I, you were probably too young. But older people, the people who listen to your show will say, what the heck was September 6th, 1995? Well, let me refresh everyone's memory because it's a good story. Uh, on that day, there was a trial going on that got a little notoriety, the O.J. Simpson trial. And if you follow the trial or watched any of the movies or documentaries, what happened on September 6, 1995, is one of the characters in, in that trial, Detective Mark Furman, was, uh, took the Fifth Amendment when he was accused of having said the N-word which kind of tipped the trial into a certain direction because it was so inflammatory. Right. 
and and everybody in the world who watched that trial saw it except me because I was sequestered on the top floor of the criminal courts building because F. Lee Bailey had accused me of drugging, coaching, and influencing Furman's testimony earlier in the trial. Hmm. In fact, during the cross-exam in the middle of the trial, uh, I got subpoenaed because I, I was in the courtroom about 25 to 30 times during the trial, and I would fax them kind of off-the-wall observations that might help their uh, help them be more impactful. Hmm. So uh, here's a slight tangent. So for instance, at the end of the trial, I fax them, you know, the way to control or influence a jury when they go into deliberation and they're not in front of you, huh? I think a good way to do it in this trial would be to haunt them. So make sure that Marsha Clark plays the 911 tapes that were played in the trial where she's telling police that OJ Simpson's trying to break into her townhouse. Right. So Marsha played that because, you know, that's kind of a way to bring, uh, get their, get their attention uh, mm. when they leave. And so what happened though on, on uh, September 6th, I was sequestered because in the middle of the trial, I got subpoenaed by Johnny Cochran and F. Lee Bailey, but I conveniently was in a building that fell down in the earthquake. And so the subpoena never reached me. Mm. That's crazy. And, uh, and so the, the trial went on, but they couldn't find me because the office that I was in fell down in the 94 earthquake. <laughs> and so the trial went on at the end of the trial. And so I'm sequestered and I have no idea what's going on. And, and I, uh, uh, I never coached or medicated Detective Furman. Mm. Uh, and, but F. Lee Bailey had it in for me, and uh, he, was, he was going to bring me on the stand during the cross-exam a year earlier, but that didn't happen. Mm. So I didn't know what was going on, and, and I learned 80% of what I know about difficult people on that one day. Oh, I'm in sure fact, you did. In fact, I wrote a book called Talking to Crazy, How to Deal with... Uh, irrational and impossible people in your life. Mm. And, and by the way, one of the reasons they had me speak in Russia, because, uh, and I'm, I'm there speaking along with a Nobel Prize winner, is because my book, Talking to Crazy, the Russian edition title is How to Talk to A-Holes. Mm. And it went viral. Right. So they brought me in because my book went viral. Uh, their Russian edition. So there I am waiting for, I will finish the anecdote so we can get onto other stuff. So uh, there I am, uh, uh, wondering what's going on and i get really nervous and i really get anxious and the way my mind works is i'm always putting myself into these crazy situations and just before i panic i get smart i don't know it's a, it's kind of a death wish in me that uh, i put myself way out in these situations because it just uh, maybe i have narcolepsy i don't know but it, it wakes me up and so there i am wondering what's going on wondering what's going on and i didn't know he took the fifth amendment and then I, and here's what I figured out about F. Lee Bailey and 80% of all the difficult people that you run into. One of the things that all difficult people do is sometimes they charm us or else why would you have them in your life at all? Then they frustrate us, then they anger us, and then they outrage us. And the majority of people feel very uncomfortable when they're outraged and feel uncomfortable because they don't want to get enraged. So when someone outrages you and they push you into your enrage, what happens is your mind focuses on calming yourself down. And when you're off balance, 
the difficult person uh, gets the better of you. And so the difficult person can be a venter, could be a yeller, could be a whiner, could be a complainer, could be someone who gives you the uh, uh, the the uh, sullen who stone uh, stonewalls you. Mm. And so I knew he was going to do that. Mm. I knew he was going to come in and uh, be calm. Then he would frustrate me. Then he would anger me. And then he would try to outrage me. Mm. And so when he came in, I went from anxious to just a totally focused and what i did kevin is what i'm doing with you is i just held on to his eyes mm. and i can move my head and hold on to someone's eyes like i'm doing with your eyes and he sits down and here's something else i learned it's the power of innuendo an innuendo is when you make a statement instead of asking a question but you try to manipulate people with the innuendo so he says dr goulston we don't know exactly what your role is here and what I realize is when people make a statement like that, you usually go, uh-huh. And when you go, uh-huh, they're reeling you in. Mm. You just did it. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> and so I did, instead of going, uh-huh, uh-huh, and letting him reel me in, I just was just calm. I kept looking into his eyes. And when he would make these statements, I would go, I, I wouldn't say anything. I just blink my eyes, tilt my head, blink my eyes. And it was a little awkward because I was supposed to be saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, but I wasn't saying anything because I knew that was his MO to get me off balance so that he could then slam me. So what happens is he uh, he talks for a few minutes and Bill Hodgman, who uh, was replaced by Christopher Darden, says to me, Mark, you haven't said anything. And I said, Bill, he hasn't asked me a question. Right. And then I looked at Effley Bailey and Effley Bailey kind of flinched like there might be more to me than he thought. And then he started pushing me. And just as they said in the trial, uh, just as he said to Detective Furman, so you're here to say you never said the N-word. So I knew he would pick up speed and push me. And he, and he reached the point where he said, so you're here to say that you never coached, you never medicated, you never influenced, you never did anything to affect Detective Mark Furman's testimony. In retrospect, I don't even know why we met because Furman took the Fifth Amendment. So you know, there was no reason to meet with me in case he perjured himself because he didn't say anything. But this is what I did. And this is what you can do with such people. Uh, so he's pushing me into he's trying to outrage me and I'm not saying anything. So picture this. You're hitting me with your best shot. You're George Foreman just laying into me, and I'm Muhammad Ali. There I am, and Zaire. And, uh, and you're just hitting me with everything you have. And so he hits me with his best shot. Everybody in the room is wondering what I'm going to say. Mm. I, I, I haven't let go of his eyes, Kevin. And I count to seven because everybody's staring at me. And it's going so well, I count to seven again in my head. And then I go... <clears throat> And everybody in the room, you know, uh, uh, looks in like the E.F. Hutton commercial. What's he going to say? And I said, uh, I said, Mr. Bailey, um, my mind wandered the last five or six minutes and it sounded like what you were saying was important. Could you please repeat it to me? Hmm. Yeah. He said, oh, so what? Long. <laughs> exactly. And, 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 and have and, a question because, in there too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because what happens is. Difficult people try to provoke us because when we're provoked, we're off balance. And so what happened is 
if they try to provoke us, they don't really actually know what they said. Mm. And so uh, he said, huh? I said, yeah, my mind wandered. And I think what you were saying was important. Can you run it by me again? And so he looked at one of the other lawyers, uh, Carl Douglas, who was an associate of Johnny Cochran. And then, uh, uh, and you could feel that it totally disarmed him. Right. And, and then uh, he, he said, uh, I have to finish the story. He, he, he then said, he said uh, to Bill Hodgman, I don't think we have to call uh, Dr. Goulston on the witness stand because it was a moot point because of the Fifth Amendment. And as he's getting up, I looked at him and I said, Mr. Bailey, I have a question for you. And Bill Hodgman said to me, Mark, Mark, it's the end of the trial. Let's just let it go. You know, let's just, it's the end of the trial. Let's just get out of Dodge here. And I said, Bill, I have it handled. And I looked at Bailey and I said, uh, remember earlier in the trial when they said you can't unring a bell when the N-word came out? And he looked at me and said, yes, yeah, so? I said, yesterday in front of the world, you, you implied a relationship between me and Detective Mark Furman, who is seen currently as one of the most racist cops ever. Right. So you slurred me. Hmm. Do you have any idea, any idea how we could unslur a slur? And he looked at me like, who is this nutcase? Then he looked at Bill Hodgman, like, who's your little friend? He walks out and then he comes back and he looks at me and he says, I'll trade you a retraction in tomorrow's newspaper if you tell me what you figured out about me. Hmm. Interesting. And then Bill said, Mark, they misspelled your name. Nobody can spell your name. Don't worry about it. And so I just shrugged my shoulders. But yeah. And thank you for indulging me. But what the story means is difficult people uh, who will try to get the best of us by frustrating and angering us. And here's how you deal with them. Make a list of all the difficult people you have to deal with in life. And, uh, and those are the ones where just their name creates a knot in your stomach. Hmm. Just a text message causes you to go, oh, not them. And when you're dealing with them, always hold a part of yourself back like I did with Bailey. And they may surprise you and not be difficult, but you don't want to be caught off guard or off balance if they hit you with one of those statements or sarcastic things, because that's their MO to provoke you into getting angry, and then you have to calm yourself down. And then when they do that, you can say, come again, say that again. Uh, you want to run that by me in a different voice? Right. Yeah, change it up. You know, there's something to be said about that. And I appreciate you sharing uh, that story. I think it's just such a good one. And I think also it's foolish to ever try to pick the brain of a, psych a psychiatrist, too. I think that was a little foolish on that, <laughs> on that lawyer's part. But what you're saying here is very applicable to the workforce and applicable to just any human being. I want to think about this in the context of a coworker, the coworker that you can write down on a note paper that infuriates you if they say something. But as the leader of the organization, should I know that about who's ticking who off in an organization? And how can I structure, whether it's responsibilities, an org chart, um, leadership positions, how do I structure my organization so that there's less of that toxicity uh, within my team? Well, I'll share something uh, that we're actually launching into the world. Uh, under Michael uh, Michelangelo mindset. And if you're listening in, I'm going to share with you a 
culture transformation exercise that is so simple that it makes costly ones unnecessary, ones you're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for. It's so simple. So let me ask you, Kevin, uh, if you have a company where everybody in the company wakes up and when they wake up and they don't have some sort of mental or medical condition outside the company, but if everyone wakes up and says, I can't wait to go to work, wouldn't you say you have a good culture? Yes, absolutely. And wouldn't you also say that if it's a significant number of people wake up and say, oh, I'm just, I hate my job, I'm trapped, uh, maybe I should send out a resume, that you have a pretty bad culture? Yes. So here's, <clears throat> here's a, a, something we'll be releasing as part of Michelangelo Mindset. So Michelangelo Mindset is basically that Michelangelo imagines, saw, and realize the statue of David in a piece of marble. You know, so he saw it in the marble. So if you're a leader, what I'm suggesting to you is that if you can look into your company and see in your culture a company where everybody wakes up saying, I can't wait to go to work. You got a good culture. And how do you do that? It's not rocket science. What you do is you send out, and I have a case history of this on a, uh, but I, I can't mention the famous publication, uh, but they, they did this to get a new editor-in-chief. And, and the editor-in-chief is winning all kinds of awards. Uh, but the way you do this for your company is you, you, say, you say to your people, you know, uh, we want to work to make this company one where all of you wake up and say, I can't wait to go to work. And we're a little selfish because we know that when you talk to your friends and we're trying to attract talent and someone says, tell us about your company, tell us about your job. If you say, I can't wait to go to work and they don't feel that way about their company, guess what? They're going to want to work here. Definitely. Well, so going forward, what are three observable positive uh, uh, actions? They have to be observable that the company takes and three negative actions that we eliminate completely, that if we did that would cause you to say, I can't wait to go to work. You put that out to all your people. Uh, you you uh, collect it anonymously. You tell them this is not a place to finger point an individual. You can go to HR for that. But what you do is you collect them all and you say that the three most common positive observable behaviors you wanted us to do are these three and the three most negative uh, behaviors that we're currently doing that you want us to eliminate are these three and we're going to do that and we're going to check in with you quarterly because what we really want is for all of you to be able to think to yourself i can't wait to go to work so can you see how that would work out? Now, going back to your question, how do you deal with a difficult, because uh, uh, I coach a lot of, I, I'm, executive, I'm a Marshall Goldsmith 100 executive coach, so I coach founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs. Uh, uh, one of the things that I suggest is having skin in the game. So you can use all the usual things, but a lot of times they reach out to me because I have that extra training. You know, hostage negotiation training, psychiatrist. But one of the ways you might uh, 
and I do believe you need to do something with that employee. Because if it's well known in your culture that you have a toxic employee that's being allowed uh, to misbehave, what you're triggering in people, and you're the leader, is you're like the spouse who should have taken the kids away from the abusive other spouse. And what you're also doing is you're triggering flashbacks in people of that situation that didn't happen. And you need to be the person. Now, maybe, you know, go through HR, but, and I know you don't want to deal with conflict, uh, but I will tell you this, because I coach people how to do this, because the CEOs that I coach are conflict avoidant when it comes to personal things. Mm -hmm. And they feel guilty and they pawn it off to someone else, but they know exactly what I just told you. You know, pawning it off to HR or the COO when I'm running the company, sends a bad message. Mm. So I have all kinds of tactics. And if you like, if anybody likes what I'm saying, they can check out Talking to Crazy because it's filled with those. But here's, here's one of the tactics in there, is you take the person aside and here's how you have emotional skin in the game. You say, um, uh, I need your help with something. Yeah, I need your help with something because you do jobs that are very valuable to the company. And it'd be difficult to replace what you bring to the company. So you bring value. But I'm getting close to rooting against you. That's the skin in the game. What? I'm getting close to rooting against you because in spite of all that great value you bring to our company, I've heard on more than a couple occasions of incidents where you're not just disrespectful of people. You're really verging on being abusive. Hmm. And in order for me to root for you, I need to make this company psychologically safe for everyone. Hmm. And since it's more than a couple incidents, you're getting in the way of that. And I owe that to my people. I owe that to you. Right. But can you feel how that has skin in the game as opposed to retreating to something that sounds intellectual? Sure. Yes. We're all in this together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and you wonder how that plays out on a macro level. You know, if everyone in the organization is uh, at the highest level of productivity, the highest level of satisfaction, if you will. What I'm curious about though, Mark, is competition. Competition within your own borders. Do you think that's good or do you think that's bad? Look, I think capitalism is good. I think competition is good. I think, um, but the need to win at all costs is bad. So if you can understand the benefits, uh, or maybe just look at competition in a different light, it is the foundation of trying to make one other better versus trying so, to crush one other. You could definitely have a, a positive impact in your own organization. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I respect so much about the golf profession is how they call uh errors on themselves. The ball moves, they call it out. Mm. Ownership. They take ownership of it. 
Hmm. And I'll tell you, here's the great opportunity. Uh, and, and one of the things, uh, and I have something called Michelangelo leadership, and maybe we'll lead see where this heads towards the end. So just as, uh, just as Michelangelo saw the statue of David and then realized it, uh, and we have a piece on um, uh, Michelangelo leadership, uh, inside your people, are people who want to feel this towards you. They want to trust you. They want to have confidence. They want to feel safe. They want to respect you. They want to admire you. They want to like you. And they want to feel inspired by you. And if you don't think that's true, imagine the effect on them if they can't trust you, if they don't have confidence in you, if you don't take charge and make it safe. Uh, if they don't admire you, if they don't uh, respect you and they don't like you and you don't inspire them. Mm. And so when I coach people, and this is the only way I coach executives, I say, well, I only will coach you if you want to grow into be that leader, because at my age and looking at leadership in the world, the world needs better leaders and fast. And, and these are the things, these are the observable behaviors that if you do them, will result in your people feeling that way towards you. Hmm. First of all, uh, and, and, and it's a shame to see what Governor Cuomo is getting into, because when he did the uh, uh, briefings during COVID, he demonstrated a number of these, and it's a shame you know, where things go in people's career. But first of all, you're unflappable, but you're present. So Romney came off as he's come off as unflappable, but uh, he's getting a little more three-dimensional. But he didn't come off as present. He came off as more robotic. So you're unflappable, meaning you're really calm and and, and cool, and I don't mean slick. Uh, you're present. You're knowledgeable, meaning you don't shoot from the hip. What you're saying, you really know. You're wise meaning you focus on what's important and have a way of taking the stuff that's less important and deprioritizing it. Uh, you're, uh, you're likable, meaning you don't take yourself too seriously. I mean, we'll tolerate someone who is like that, but we wish they had a sense of humor about things. Mm. Uh, and you're gracious uh, and you're humble. And if you can do that, and so when I coach people, I give them those, uh, those criteria, and I say at the next meeting, at your company or the next presentation, grade yourself in each of those. Did you come off as unflappable? Did you come off as present? Did you come off as knowledgeable? Oh, uh, something else, they take charge. Uh, that's how they create safety. So you take charge without being controlling. And can, can I give you a quick anecdote you're going to like about Colin Powell? Love it. So in the uh, early 90s, uh, uh, I did a workshop uh, in Dallas, uh, and it was an international uh, conference, I think, for Colwell Banker. It must have been 12,000 people there. And, and I was just doing a workshop. And Colin Powell was one of the speakers. And, you know, and, and uh, real estate people are very transactional. You know, you... You can motivate them, but to inspire them, that's a, that's a real uh, that's a real challenge because they'll go for the rah rah, but to uplift them, mm. 
And Colin Powell was incredibly inspiring. Hmm. He was talking about being grateful for uh, his upbringing to his community, about uh, the honor. And he really meant it to serve his country. So picture this. It's 1130 in the morning. Uh, there's 10,000 people in the Dallas Auditorium, and then there's a Q&A. And so someone asked him a question. And he was being considered for president, you know, as a possible candidate. And someone in the audience says, General Powell, I understand that your wife was depressed, you know, uh, had shock treatments, was in a psychiatric hospital. You want to comment on that? 10,000 people go quiet. You could hear a pin drop. And I'm thinking, what's he going to do? Is he going to dismiss the thing? Is he going to ignore it? Is he going to say something politically correct? Like, well, you know, uh, mental illness should have the same parity as physical illness. Uh, this is what he said. And if you're listening in, write this down. Aggression plus principle equals conviction. Aggression minus principle equals hostility. Hmm. It's good to be aggressive, but tie it to a principle or a mission. Don't make it personal. Mm. So this is what he said, which uh, is one of the best examples of that firmness plus principle. He said, excuse me, sir. The person you love more than anyone in your life is living in hell. And you don't do everything you can to get them out of hell. Do you have a problem with that, sir? Can you feel the power of that, Kevin? Yeah, no, it's strong character right there. Very wise, unflappable, you know, calm, cool, collect, and wise. You know, those are all, and you know, just authentic, very authentic. You know, you, it's not political. And that's what people are, are yearning for these days. And that's one of the things I want to ask you about is you've dealt and coached so many CEOs what are some of the misconceptions people have about their mental health? What are some of the things that they've come to you about? Uh, is it insecurity? Is it uh, maybe being someone who they never thought they were? Were they bullied when they were young and they have these insecurities that are coming out about themselves? What are some of the things that you've been able to take away from working with people at the highest level that you've been able to experience or understand about them that's probably someone on the outside wouldn't? Well, I think what they bring to me is uh, uh, I'm unflappable and present outwardly. Mm -hmm. but, but inside, the things that I go through that I really can't tell anyone, um, the unknown, the not having an answer. And even though I can say, yes, we have a process, there's still that part of me that thinks I should have an answer. Hmm. Uh, uh, here's an interesting insight that came out from speaking with one of them. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about uh, a Jungian shadow. No. Okay. Well, like Carl Jung? called Carl Jung. So one of the things that Carl Jung talked about is that our personalities have a shadow. And the shadow often contains the parts of our personality that we don't want anyone in the world to see, and we don't even want to admit it to ourselves. Mm -hmm. 
because uh, if anyone in the world sees it, we think they're going to be disappointed. Mm. And if we admit it to ourselves, we're afraid we're going to be ashamed. Mm. And so one of the things that I often do with these uh, CEOs is, is I'll share, I'll say, like, for instance, uh, did you know that you can root for your best friend to fail uh, and hope they fail uh, and still be a great person as long as you don't act on it? Really? Uh, Interesting. Uh, did you know that you can inwardly be petty, jealous, have a chip on your shoulder, uh, be a scorekeeper uh, about all kinds of people in the world? But as long as you don't act on any of them, you're good to go. Hmm. And do you follow what I'm saying? Yes. Is the enormous yeah. energy that people use to not want to accept that we all have these shadows. Hmm. Do you think people are fighting that a lot? Their thoughts, their, neg their negative yeah. thoughts, their cynical thoughts, and they're trying to grasp and come to terms with who they are as an individual, uh, that they're not their thoughts. They're actually what they actually do, what they're, what they're about. Yeah, they many, years, many years ago, this is a slight tangent, but hopefully you'll find it sort of interesting. Many years ago, I was uh, on Oprah. Mm. And I've done a lot of things in my life. This could be another interview, but uh, many years ago, I was the world's authority on helping divorced couples get back together again. Mm, interesting. It was called recoupling. I was an Oprah, the Today Show, the New York Times. But, you know, and I probably could have focused on that. And I didn't market it. People just found out that I could do it. And people would say, you know, geez, we're, we're, we're divorced and we're dating and we each think we made a big mistake. Can, can we patch it up? And so I was on Oprah, and and Oprah is Oprah. Oprah challenges her guests, and so this gets back to the shadows. And so uh, she mentioned something to challenge me, you know, as she introduced me. And I said to her, I said, you know, Oprah, people don't get divorced because they stop loving or stop liking each other. They get divorced because they can't stop hating each other. <laughs> you see how that lands? Yes. <laughs> and I'll tell you, when I, oh boy, <laughs> Kevin's looking at me, we got to talk offline. And it's interesting when, when I've talked to some couples and I've said, let me give you a choice. Would you rather get your way or never have that feeling of an ice pick under your rib cage when you really despise and have contempt for your partner, but mm. you couldn't have both? And when I speak to a number of couples, they'd say, oh, uh, I'll take the second. Because when you're feeling that and you feel deep contempt for your partner, and we're talking also about business partners. And how do you manage that? Mm. So, you know, but these are some of the issues that I deal with. Also, I'd say probably the single greatest issue that I help leaders with is conflict avoidance. Mm, right. Because And what happens is the, the respect that people have for leaders rises and falls on how they confront or avoid conflict. So I coach them because when you can avoid conflict or when you can stand up to someone the way apparently I did to F. Lee Bailey, but more importantly, the way 
uh, General Colin Powell stood up to that heckler. Uh, the admiration and respect for you goes through the roof, plus your own respect for yourself. I can't believe I stood up to that person. Right. And now back to our title. Do you think that's a reason why a lot of millennials don't want to listen? They don't want to be talked to? They want to be talked down to? You know, if you're in the same setting as someone who's in your own organization and you say, hey, you know, this role falls underneath your responsibility. And they say, no, it's, it's, this is you. You do it. I'm busy. And you're, you know, half their age, let's say. Am I, as a millennial, not listening to that person? Or am I also maybe a little fed up that someone is talking down to me and I can't deal with conflict? Well, I think it's, I think it's all those things. And, and I'll tell you something that also happens because uh, I've coached more women than men because, you know, because I coach on things like, you know, intra-psychological uh, issues and interpersonal issues. And, and women are much more open if you can help them than men are to that. Men have all the same issues, but they're not that open to it. And, uh, and, and, and there's something that I coach women to doing because what, one of the issues that a number of women have is they have anticipatory pushback. And what that means is, uh, and I love the women I coach. I mean, I just think they're amazing. But for a lot of women, what will happen is if they think they're going to be put down what they're saying or marginalized, even before the other person says it, if that's what they're expecting, what happens is women's voices, sometimes the pitch of it goes up, mm. almost as if they're anticipating an attack. Mm. Right. And when the pitch of their voice goes up, it doesn't sound authoritative. Right. It communicates anxiety. And so with everybody I coach, I say one of the ways you want to speak authoritatively is that when you're making a point, the pitch of your voice should go down about a third of an octave when you make it. Hmm. Because it's like you're putting a stake in the sand. I know these things are important, but this is what we need to focus on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Now, now, Mark, these are all great qualities, undoubtedly. You know, some of the top leaders that I love and adore that come on the show represent these qualities. But I don't want to be naive about how difficult it is to master these things. How does someone apply this to their daily lives on a daily basis? Uh, is this something they're born with? Are there natural qualities that can apply to this factor as well? And how do I read a book and apply it to myself, be in your organization, be your network, and become this person who is unflappable, cool, collect, wise, and has some sustenance when they speak? Well, a lot of it uh, comes down to how much you care about it. You know, people don't do what's important to them. They do what they care enough about. It's important for me to diet and exercise, but I don't care enough about it to do it as well as I should. So the, the, the key is how much do you care about it? And I'm at a stage in my life, I'm fortunate I can be a little bit selective. And so when people come to me uh, for coaching and I shared with you, this is the only coaching I wanna do. And I won't 
I won't see you unless you see our working together as an opportunity to grow into that type of leader that your company and the world needs. And if uh, uh, I don't do remedial stuff. Okay. Yeah. But, but on the other hand, some of these people, uh, I remember I met with one of them uh, years ago uh, and we just had a meeting, I think at the Beverly Hills uh, Hotel Polo Lounge and he was nasty to a waitress. And he looks at me and I'd been warned about him. And I said, uh, uh, I said, I'm kind of giddy. And he looked at me and he said, what? I said, I'm kind of giddy. So what's that about? I said, I'm giddy because I don't have to work with someone like you and would never work with someone like you. And he says, what? He says, I just saw a, a little bit of your behavior, which I'm guessing crosses over into abuse when you're back at your company. And life is too short to help a person like you who already got more from life than you deserve. And he looked at Powerful. me. Oh, yeah. He looked at me. And, and, and this has happened on several occasions. He looks around. Is anyone catching him? And he says, can it be fixed? Mm -hmm. I said, what do you mean? He says, can it be fixed? Uh, I, I lost the marriage. I think it cost me a business. Can it be fixed? And I said, I think it's an addiction. I think the best you can be is an a-hole in recovery. But if it matters enough to you, it can be. And he said, would you work with me? I said, you're on probation. But the first sign of you taking delight in hurting people, we're over. Hmm. But do you follow me? So it's, it's uh, uh, and I got to tell you, Kevin, uh, I was afraid of bullies growing up. I was meek. I was timid. And what changed me, and people are listening in, they'll relate to this. When my oldest daughter, who's now, uh, 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 39, when she was born, I looked into her eyes when she was about five months old, I was strolling her and she looked into my eyes. It was like a polygraph. Hmm. And she was saying to me, when I grow up, are you going to be someone I'm proud of? Hmm. I don't know what she was saying, but I looked into her eyes and I imagine she was saying that. And I couldn't, I couldn't tell her that she'd be proud of me because I gave into my comfort zone. I avoided things. And growing up, I would never raise my hand. I would never speak in front of people. Mm. And I thought to myself, what is the most difficult thing for me to do? And I thought, speaking in front of people. Mm. So I then created a path where I've created this Frankenstein where, you know, uh, and I still have that anxious part of me inside, mm. but from someone who wouldn't raise his hand, you know, I've spoken to a thousand Russians with a Nobel Prize winner. I've trained hostage negotiators. And I can still see her eyes looking at me. Uh, am I going to be proud of you? So this mindset that one is trying to achieve, when we think about listening, I, I want to throw in learning as a mindset as well in order to be actively listening you probably want to learn a thing or two and be open to that new thing and as we get older or do things time and time again I, I somewhat feel like that learning mentality just gets less 
and less and less. I don't want to learn something new today. I already know this. I've done this before. I've dealt with these type of people before. How do you get yourself back into that mindset or understand and appreciate and and pull yourself back to make sure that you're listening more actively, that you're you're paying attention, that you actually deeply care about what you're doing? Well, I think you have to ask yourself, who do you want to be? Who do you want to be and why? And for me, it's very important that people who look up to me, be it my children, the people I work with, it's very important to me, as we mentioned earlier, that they have trust, confidence, respect, and admire me. I'll tell you something. I've been fortunate. I've had eight mentors. They've all died. The last one was Larry King. The one before him was a leadership guy named Warren Bennis. And what I loved about my mentors is I would never say anything to them that I wasn't 150% sure that I was going to do because the esteem I felt for them was huge. Mm. And the last thing I would want to do is disappoint them. So I guess it comes down to with who you want to be. For me, um, in a world that trusts nobody, when people trust me uh, or are confident in me, it's in, it's critically important to me that I do everything to be worthy of that. But but that's just my standard. I mean, there's some people say, "Well, that sounds fine. Sounds like a nice sermon, Mark." Well, then you know, then then you know, all power to you. You know, we're not gonna. We're not going to work together, and there's a good chance we won't even be friends. <laughs> now, Mark, you, you've had you've had many different experiences throughout your career. Is this you changing who you want to be, or is this just a revelation and you wanting to try something new? And the core values, the mindset, stays the same. Well, I think no. What's happened is uh, I've always realized the power of going where someone is at and getting where they're at before you want to take them anywhere else. Mm. So uh, in one of my books, uh, I have two recent books written in COVID. One's called Why Cope When You Can Heal, and the other one's Trauma to Triumph, a roadmap for leading through disruption and, and uh, thriving on the other side. But one of the things that I introduced to the world in Why Cope When You Can Heal is called Surgical Empathy. Because when I was a suicide prevention-focused psychiatrist, none of my patients died. And I tried to figure out what I did. Hmm. And so one of the things I realized, and this is where the Michelangelo mindset is, is that I realized that inside all my suicidal patients was hope. I just had to sculpt away everything that got in the way of that. And what I discovered and what my book, Just Listen, is about is about how do you cause another person to feel felt, which is different than feeling understood. Because when someone feels felt, they often start to cry with relief because most people feel really alone and many people who are depressed and suicidal feel alone in hell. We're just there. What have been some of the things that you've had to eliminate in your life? And if you take that analogy of that marble, you know, sculpting is essentially just scraping things away until you have something mm -hmm. that you want. 
What have you had to eliminate in your life? Well, one of the things that I've had to eliminate is uh, I've had to be real comfortable saying no. Because there is a part of me, you know, I'm a, I'm a medical doctor, you know, even though I'm out in the business world advising and coaching and I'm a confidant. Mm. Um, uh, but, you know, as a doctor, you live to serve. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you, quite personally, I'll tell you the most difficult thing that I've had is given that I had, you know, pretty good success in suicide prevention. Uh, I, I, uh, I'm, re I'm retired. So I go out and I'm, I'm doing a presentation to, uh, zoom global in September, a friend of mine, he became a friend cause his 14 year old son died by suicide. And we've been doing presentations, the EO and YPO, and we're doing a global zoom call to all of YPO in September. And then we're meeting with a big chunk of EO in October in Reno. And one of the most difficult things is, you know, when people read up and my work on suicide, they'll say, you could help my kid. And I say, uh, uh, I, uh, superficially, I'll say, I, uh, I'm retired status, you know, so I'm licensed, but I'm retired. So, but I'll help you help your kid. And then every now and then someone will get through and they'll say, yeah, but you could help my kid. And, and I have to say no to it because part of what I say, and I still have trouble with this, yeah. is there's a good chance I could connect with your kid. Hmm. But then I'd have to do a bait and switch because I couldn't continue to see them. And in all good conscience, how could I say to someone who says, I, 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 feel, I feel hopeful, I feel less alone, how can you leave me? but I'm, I'm not in a position to be able to follow up with them. Mm. So, but it bothers me because, you know, I do have some skills at being able to reach people, but I can't continue to see them. And so I do the best I can to help parents who are worried about their kids. Uh, one area that I'm expanding into, maybe uh, some of your, I think some of your listeners They'll relate to this if they're Gen Xers. Uh, it's it's launching the failure to launch twenty something child. Hmm. If you come from a high achieving family, and you have three siblings, there's a very good chance that one of them is not with the program. And when their peers pass them by, when their younger siblings pass them by it's one of the most painful things that goes on in that family. Mm -hmm. And fortunately at that time, you know, those kids are willing to be helped. You know, sometimes at 16, they're not, but when all their peers have passed them by, and these are great kids. Now, some of them turn to opiates and, and whatever, but a lot of these are kids who, who need an emotional connection that they're not able to get in families that are focused on high achievement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and speaking from firsthand, you know, it, it's more than just the individual that the opiates affect. It's the family, it's everyone that they know. And the support system is, is something that's, it's very difficult to, to 
master and understand. And I don't know if there is a one way to do one thing, but um, I think what I've found is just love and support and knowing that you can't make a difference in their lives. And, you know, we've got a problem that's going on in the world right now. And it's so unfortunate to hear. And, and, and right, you know, of course, right, founders, entrepreneurs, they're going to have uh, mental health issues. They're burning themselves out. It's tiring. It's not, it's not working. Nine out of 10 businesses fail. COVID happens. One out of four adults are contemplating suicide. It, it's all of these factors on top of fentanyl and, and, and opioid crisis now that's kind of combining and, and affecting so many families. In, in the United States and, and across the world, what advice do you have for people like that when it's really just upon the individual themselves? Well, it's interesting you bring this up. So I'm a Marshall Goldsmith uh, 100 coach and we do weekly calls. And one of the calls was on mental health. And I, if I, I can find the video clip for you and someone suggested that, you know, that I offer some tips. Sure. So, if you're a parent and you're concerned about a teenager, a young adult, or, or if you're concerned about your spouse, here are four prompts uh, that might help you to get through to them. Now, if we're talking about teenagers, do this while you're doing an activity because teenagers hate face-to-face -face conversations. Unless they initiate it, there's nothing teenagers hate more than a you know, heart-to-heart talk. So while you're doing an activity with them, uh, here's the script but you can modify it. Uh, like if you're driving or doing an activity, you could say, you know, a lot of us parents are worried about our kids and with the shutdowns and how it's affecting them. And we hear stories about how they're not doing so well. So can I ask you a few things? And hopefully if you tee it up that way, they won't just freeze you out. <laughs> and if they say, okay, dad, okay, mom. And here are the four props. And you say, at its absolute worst, at its absolute worst, how awful are you capable, capable of feeling about your life or yourself? And they're going to go, what? And here's a taste of surgical empathy, which we go in deep. And they're going, what? And you repeat it, and they say, pretty awful. So surgical empathy would say, pretty awful or very awful? Okay already, very awful. Huh. And when you're feeling it, how alone are you capable of feeling when you're with that? Pretty alone. Pretty alone or all alone? Okay, already. All, okay, all alone. The third thing you say is, take me to the last time you felt it. Huh? Yeah, was it at 2.30 in the morning last night when uh, we heard you in your room and it sounded like you were walking around like you couldn't get to sleep? And here's an interesting thing for your listeners and viewers and you. When you can get someone to tell you and describe something so clearly that you as the listener can see it, they re-feel it. Hmm. So when your son or daughter says, yeah, I, uh, it was 2.30 and I was walking around and you know, I couldn't get back to sleep and you know, I felt like punching the wall and, and then what happened? And I kept looking for some of your expired sleeping pills. Wow, what, then what happened? And you get them opening up to you. And then they say, and then the sun rose. Mm. And then the fourth thing you say, and hopefully you've earned the right into this, you could say, I have, a, I have a favor to ask. It might be one of the biggest favors I've ever asked you. When you're feeling that way, 
or you're even heading down that road. I want you and need you to do whatever it takes to get your mom or my undivided attention. Hmm. You know, that's interesting you say that, though. Because the people I've talked to that contemplate suicide are just numb. And they're just, mm-hmm. they're like, there's no one out there that cares about me. So mm-hmm. to say that, hey, you know, reach out to me. When people are contemplating suicide, I feel like they're, they feel like no one cares about them. Oh, that's, that's absolutely true. That's what, they're not going to reach out for help. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but, I think what's important, and it's very difficult, is to reach out to them. You've noticed differences in their behavior. They seem quiet when they used to be a little bit, you know, more up. Uh, They seem to spend too much time, you know, withdrawn. Uh, They're saying too many sarcastic comments, and it's not just their humor. Hmm. And part of you can begin to say it is, uh, 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 you know, and you can say this at work. You could say, uh, uh, I've, no- I've noticed some changes and you've been on my mind. And, I've- and the changes I've noticed make me wonder uh, what's going on. Hmm. I'll share something else. Maybe we can, this is an update. I'm partnering with the top psychiatrist in all of India. He's the Sanjay Gupta of Psychiatry of India. Okay. And, and uh, what he's, saying, I don't know if it's true, what he's saying is that the uh, India is going to do compulsory mental health screening of the entire country, because it's a much more spiritual country. Okay. Expl- elaborate he, on that a little bit. Compulsory screening. Of, uh, of Indian citizens about their emotional well-being. Okay. Okay. And, and, uh, and so he's created a tool that helps screen for that. And he and I have co-created an easier tool. So he has a tool, uh, he has a tool, you know, his company is up, he has a tool that's called uh, the Emotional uh, Wellness Index. Okay. And I told him, I said, you may have destigmatized mental illness because see the problem with mental illness and the stigma is the word mental. When you say to someone, how's your mental health? Even if you say mental health, they get defensive. Mental is very charged. But if someone said, hey, these are tough times, you know, how's your emotional well-being doing these days? Hmm. You'll talk more, you'll talk more openly. So he has eight years evidence-based and together we created, it's my last name and his last name, a happiness scale. So his index takes probably 10 minutes to do 15 minutes and they're, you know, they're probing questions. Our happiness scale takes less than a minute. Mm, And basically it's a way of checking in. uh, And, but, but see a lot of people, as you say, with suicide, they don't reach out for help. Right. But you may be able to get people to say, Oh, why don't you check your happiness level today? It takes less than a minute. And then what it basically shares is, you know, if you're unhappy in a couple areas, fix those areas. Mm-hmm. If you're unhappy everywhere else, you know, maybe you want to go deeper and then you would use his tool. Got it. That's interesting. I feel like our moods always change throughout the day. 
too. Sure. So depending on when you take that test, it would be interesting. And, and what also people aren't talking about or want to talk about is there are are there addictions? So it's interesting that you guys are, have put together or he put together this compulsive test because that's what addiction is, right? No, 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 it, no. It's not. It's not compulsions. Screening. No, compuls not compulsion screening. What I'm saying is the Indian government cares about the emotional well-being of its country. Yes. So compulsory mean is just like they're doing compulsory vaccination. What they're going to make available, what the Indian government is saying is we care about your emotional well-being and we have a way that we just want to see how you're doing. So his approach is not let's check if you're depressed or anxious or whatever. It's a way of checking in. We, we care about you. And so we just wanted to check in on your emotional well-being. So by compulsory meaning, they're going to strongly say, look, uh, we can't help you if you don't let us know how you're feeling. So it, 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 compulsory may have been the wrong word, but they're going to make it available to the whole country. Got it. I know you mean that. Got it. Know that at least it's something, you know, I, I'd love to see how this works. I think it's... You know, just kind of one of those things that's been swept under the rug. Obviously, you know, we're talking about it here. People are talking about it unquestioned. Um, but what do we do, right? What do we act upon? Um, our thoughts, actions. It's been an interesting, interesting uh, time to live in. It's been an interesting conversation today, Dr. Mark Wilson. Uh, so let's let's bring this home now. We've t covered a lot on this top on this topic, whether it was millennials, whether it was uh, being unflappable speaking with substance uh, you know what true leadership is all the way to the mental health or the emotional well-being of society in today's day and age so mark Goldstein, the question to you is what is your definition of a real leader um a real leader is someone in which their organization's mission and the wellness of their people and treating their customers and clients honestly is is critical to their own sense of self-worth dr mark wilson i'm kevin edwards asking you to go out there align the mission and wellness of your organization and always folks keep it real thanks doc If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. 
So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the Impact Collaborative. Again, that's info at real-leaders.com. Enjoy the show. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a 100 dollar a year subscription hit the link in the show notes enter in coupon code podcast 20 to receive access to all of real leaders to get you to the next level thanks for listening to this episode and always keep it real